broadcasting worldwide. Refreshing takes on legal strategies. Straightforward answers to difficult tax questions. Independent ideas on building wealth. It's the Refresher Wealth Show with Mark Kohler and Matt Sorensen. Get your free copy of Mark and Matt's ebooks and sign up for their weekly free newsletter with important tax deadlines and articles at refreshyourwealth.com. Now, here's Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to the Refresh Your Wealth Show with Mark Kohler and Matt Sorensen. As always, we've got an amazing show for you today. This is a show dedicated to teaching you about tax and legal topics. We try and keep it light and fun. We know, you know, those things aren't, you know, most fascinating thing you're out there looking for. Uh, edutainment, you know, entertainment and education. This is important stuff that we all need to know. So uh, I'm excited to be with you today. And I'm with my co-host, Mark Kohler. And Mark, we're going to be talking about uh, an issue a lot of business owners come across in terms of uh, working with employees and subcontractors today, really critical for tax and legal, really intertwined in today's topic. Yeah, no, if you own real estate, if you have a small business, if you are hiring anybody on a regular basis in your business, uh, you want to... uh, uh, understand what are the rules between employee and subcontractor and how can I avoid a mess in this process uh, it's really important so we're gonna break it down subs employees table can you really hire someone under the table and be okay I don't know we're gonna talk about it bust it <laughs> down <laughs> yeah you know in fact I was um, uh, I drove by Home Depot the other day near the office and um, you know there's a bunch of guys standing out there on the corner just waiting to jump in a truck and get paid quote unquote under the table for some random you know job you may have on your house or on an investment property you may have and uh, um, boy that's a uh, that's a big liability we're going to talk about that today obviously and and talk about it in a more serious context but that's how frequent it is (laughs) you drive by a Home Depot you see this issue on the corner yeah, yeah, no, and it, and it's true. We want to try to save money when we're trying to get projects done, but we've got to be careful not to cut too many corner, corners. So, uh, but uh, hey, we want to say thank you to all you listening to the show. We really appreciate you uh, spreading the good word. We're getting great uh, reviews on iTunes and lots of uh, uh, people sharing our show on social media with their friends and family. And if you missed the end of the show, I'm going to say it right now. Please get out, give us a little five star review on iTunes. And we, we uh, try to highlight one at the end of the show. Some of you may miss that. But uh, we appreciate that. And whenever we read your name on the air for sharing a, a five-star review, we send you a copy of one of our books, which is a big investment for us. That's, you know, 52 books during the year. And uh, <laughs> we hope that you uh, take it, you know, take it to heart. We're trying to give back a little bit. We we really put a lot of heart and um, soul into the show each week. So just want to give you everybody a little shout out. Matt, I hope that's okay. That was from the hip. Yeah. I'm, hey, we, we need to say that. And obviously you can find more info on the show and prior shows also on refreshyourwealth.com. Well, let me go ahead and get started. I want to get the show kicked off with a legal tip. A legal tip that you can actually use. A legal tip where you don't feel like you have to take a shower after. All right. Now, this is a legal tip, and this isn't 15%. You know, that's the the legal standard rate of tipping. This is a 
a tip about the legal the law. <laughs> that was a terrible joke, but <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Nice effort. Uh, it's effort. It's <laughs> I need joke tips more than I think than anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we need joke coaching. If anybody, yeah, if anybody has any, you know, help they want to provide, just let us know. We don't have a team yeah. of writers like Stephen Colbert. <laughs> yeah, we could use some help. Clearly. Um, well, let me let me give this tip here, and I it's I want to talk about what is a warranty deed. And this comes up a lot. We help a lot of clients transferring properties, you know, whether it's transferring their property that they own in their name to their trust for their estate planning or transferring a, a rental property into an LLC. Um, a lot of these involve a deed transfer. Even if you're buying real estate, obviously there's going to be a deed transfer. And the document, the legal document, transferring ownership of the real estate, typically you want it to be a warranty deed. Or if you're in California, you know, the California's got to do everything special. They call it sometimes a grant deed. Uh, most states it's called a warranty deed. Now, the reason you want a warranty deed is what that means from a legal standpoint is when someone transfers that property from them to you, let's say you're buying real estate, they're warranting that they own the property. And they're saying, I warrant that I have good title as property. Own it. There's no liens or encumbrances on it. And I'm going to protect you and defend you if someone says that's, that says otherwise. So when you get property from someone by warranty deed, you can trust that the person who transferred it to you really had good ownership because they're warranting to you that they had that. So that's a warranty deed. And that's generally what you're going to want to receive um, when you're purchasing real estate. One of the other options you may see or hear about is a quit claim deed. Quit claim deed. Quit claim deed is the opposite of a warranty deed. It is, I'm transferring this interest in real estate. If I have any interest in this real estate, it may have liens, it may not. I don't know. It's kind of like, if I own this, you own it now. But if I don't, you don't. And so a quit claim deed is a minimal type of transfer that you generally do not want to receive. You always want to receive warranty deeds. Even when you're transferring property to your own LLC or to your trust, you generally want to use a warranty deed because um, it's a full transfer of the ownership. And if you have title insurance on property you bought in your personal name, let's say you bought a when you transfer it to an LLC you own, the title transfer the title insurance transfers with a warranty deed, but does not transfer with a quit claim deed. Yeah. Now, bottom line, Matt, I love this tip is for all of you out there that own rental properties. I just had a consult with a client this morning on this is once you set up your LLC, you want to deed your property over to your LLC. Don't worry about the due on sale clause. There's always a proviso or provision inside your mortgage that allows you to transfer it to yourself, usually your trust or your own entity, as long as there's not a change in ownership with someone else. Um, so go ahead get the transfer done. Start that asset protection clock. Get the protection, but use a warranty deed or the grant deed with warranty language. So great tip, Matt. I like that. Guys, this is live. I have no idea what tip Matt's week. You know, it could be anything. Well, you're welcome, yeah. Mark. You're welcome. I'm okay. a giver. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're a giver. Well, every week, as you know, if you're a regular listener, it's a legal tip and a tax tip that can help you better live the American dream. So it's time for that tax tip. A tax tip you can actually understand and won't put you to sleep. A tax tip that could save you thousands. Well, don't you love that refreshing sound of a 
new fresh can of soda. That oh, even though Matt, I am no, I am soda free right now since February first. soda? I thought rock stars yeah, including, I'm, or is I'm, that not soda? What rock stars are not soda? Rock stars, that, that's like <laughs> nectar of the gods. Rock rock stars without carbonation is what I go for. So, uh, yeah, oh, no, okay. I I started by yeah my my year's resolution started February first. I you know I thought I would be a rebel and take January to kind of kickstart things, but since February one I've been soda free. So that little refresh your wealth sound is quite intoxicating. Is that is that tempta- so temptation? Yeah, it's temptation for those uh, religious folks out there. That's that's temptation at its best. Okay, now here's your text tip, folks. Now, I know many of you listening are going to love this. This is about the real estate professional classification. Now, this is a huge topic. Yeah, chapter in my book. It is a videos upon video on our YouTube and uh, our YouTube channel. So, you want to study up on this. Not everybody needs to be a real estate professional, but for those of you that own enough rental property, this write-off of 100% of all of your real estate depreciation, you want to look into the real estate pro classification. Well, there's a new case out. Mr. Calvinico, or Calvinico? Calvinico. I'm going to go with that. It's kind of a weird pronunciation. Mm. There's a new case that came down in November of 2015. So this case is only three months old. And he went on his tax return and claimed... In 2010, now there's another little tip here. Notice it's 2015, and he's finally getting through tax tax court in 2015. Folks, this is why you want to keep good records. In <laughs> 2010, he claimed he was a real estate professional, and he was an appraiser working for an appraisal firm, so he was in the business of real estate, and his wife was a lawyer. And so maybe they got a little, uh, you know, uh, confident, overconfident to claim this on their tax return, but they only had three rental properties. So they claimed real estate professional because he was an appraiser with three rentals. Do you think they passed, folks? Uh, folks, he and his wife got shot down. No real estate pro because two reasons. One, they didn't reach the 750 hours. They didn't get enough hours. How can you get enough hours with three rentals? And some of you may say, well, it's because he was a real estate appraiser. So that time should count. Well, We're going to come right back to give you the second reason why they failed and what you've got to look out for if you're going to be a real estate professional. Welcome back, everyone, to the Refresh Your Wealth Show with Mark Kohler and Matt Sorensen. So, Mark, why doesn't – I think you were going down this route. Appraiser, that does not count under the real estate professional rules? No. Doesn't that seem odd that an appraiser wouldn't count? Well, folks, the problem hmm. wasn't that was he, he like wasn't appraising doing appraisal like, work. Was he doing like <laughs> antiques? Appraising antiques <laughs> or <laughs> – he was working on the antique roadshow. No, I'm just joking. No, I knew the it. problem was, yeah, yeah, there you go. No, here's the catch. Here's the catch, folks. He was an appraiser working for an appraisal firm as a W-2 employee. He was not an independent appraiser. If he was independent, his time would have counted and they would have won the entire case. They would have been good. 
So here's the rule, folks. If you're going to be a real estate professional, you can't be a W-2 employee of a company and claim real estate professional. It has to be your own business. You have to be independent. And uh, this is why realtors and brokers and contractors and appraisers, hey, we love you guys. That's awesome. Go buy rentals. Get direct write-offs. Woohoo! Good stuff. But if you're going to be a work for a brokerage as a W-2 employee, you're going to have a problem. So a uh, little tip there. Case just three months old, hot off the presses. I like it. Mark Kohler on the cutting edge of tax strategies, as always. Oh, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. All right. Well, <laughs> now, we, now uh, I guess, Matt, you got our question of the week from last week. Did we have a winner? I think we had a winner this week uh, that really jumped on it quick. Yep. We had William who came in, who was the winner. Let me go over the question from last week. And uh, William is the winner. The question from last week was a question about who's liable. And um, when I, the question I posed was, we have a real estate investor who owns a property who says, oh, I want to add my daughter Jane to the property. I'm doing some estate planning. When I pass away, I want my daughter Jane to have this property. So he decides to add his daughter Jane on title to the real estate with, as joint tenants. So they're both owners as joint tenants with rights of survivorship. That way he figured when I die, my property will be inherited and my daughter Jane will own it 100%. Now the question I pose is two parts. Part one. What, who's liable if something happens on the property? Now, William wrote in on question part A, both are liable. Now, that's correct. They're both owners now on the property. Something goes wrong on the property. They both own it personally. They're both personally going to be on the hook. And now what this means is Jane's assets are now at risk and all of William's assets. And they're typically considered joint and severally liable, which means both of them are liable 100%. So if the plaintiff can only collect from one of them, then they just collect from that one. It's not like they get you know half the liability. They're both responsible for 100% of it, and the plaintiff gets to collect from either one that's easier to collect from. Now the second part of this question, because I gave a two-part question. The second part, this is a multifaceted mm -hmm. question here. <laughs> the second part of this question was, what happens if real estate investor adds on his daughter Jane and let's say Jane has a credit card debt and a judgment against her and now the credit card company wants to collect against the property well now what would happen well now there's now it's a problem because the owner of the, the real estate investor added his daughter on the property this is now an asset of hers the creditor could likely place a lien and therefore any you know sell the property or whatever is going to go to the creditor instead of to Jane for her share of the property. Now it's unlikely that the creditor would be able to force the sale and foreclosure of the property since the real estate investor on the property is not part of that judgment, but it is going to likely be a lien that could be put on property and it's um, certainly going to tie up the property, affect any refinancing of the property. A lot of issues can arise because of this, uh, uh, adding someone on in this way. So generally we recommend against this, of course. <laughs> That's kind of the point I was trying to make with this question. Uh, don't just add someone on title to your property because you think it's an easy estate planning trick. It has some liability issues, something happens on the property, or if it has their own creditor issues, it now affects you and the property. So there's your question of the week. William wrote in with correct answers on both parts. 
William, good job, man. That was awesome. And uh, kind of a tricky question. You know, I was impressed Matt pulled out a two-part question, uh, really pushing the limits of our listeners. Yeah, you got to be careful. I know. <laughs> even even Just, myself, Don't ask for man. too much. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, in light of a difficult question, which I thought, you know, was fairly challenging, I'm going to ask a tax question here. Is it deductible? Is it deductible? And uh, for those of you that ready on your smartphones, at your home computer, listening to this podcast late at night, returning email, this is your chance to quickly respond with an email to Mark, M-A-R-K, at KKOSLawyers.com or Matt, M-A-T, at KKOS Lawyers. So here's the question on your marks. Okay. With the child care credit, for those of you that have children and you're paying for dependent care costs, and this could be someone that's coming to your home. It could also be someone that is, uh, you're dropping them off at a daycare center. Uh, there's a lot of little rules here with this child care credit. But here's my question for you. If you, uh, I, I will say this, H- household services for the credit, if incurred, are part- uh, at least partially, uh, including for the care of children, qualify for the credit. So let me just say this. Say you have someone come to your house and they are doing some cooking in the kitchen. They're watching your kids and they may even be vacuuming and cleaning the house a little bit. And they're watching your kids that qualifies for the childcare credit. But here's the question. If they start driving your kids to and from school and act as a chauffeur for your children, or maybe even go into the yard and provide a little bit of landscaping. You know, maybe they need to turn on the sprinklers or move the sprinkler around the lawn. Do those, does that time count towards the child care credit? Are there limits? So here's the question. If the child care provider starts driving around your kids and acting as a chauffeur, does that count for the child care credit? That's yes or no, folks. Does the chauffeur cost count? Yes or no. There you go. Send me a text. Send me an email. Boom. Let's do it. Let's see who wins this week. <laughs> I like that. God, I don't know. Um, hey, and, and part B to that question is, does it matter <laughs> <laughs> if when they're driving, they are an Uber driver? Fully, you know, signed up with Uber, had a background check and everything. Oh, boy. Now that takes a whole new level. Boy, we'd have to really think through that one. Guys, Part B does not apply. Part B does not apply. Uh, Matt's throwing you for a loop. All right. Well, let's get into this uh, uh, topic today because I want to set the stage. Now, I'm just going to quickly share this because I've said it before on uh, a radio show. I think this past year, we had a client out in Chicago. He even came on the show and shared this traumatic experience. He hired someone under the table to help on his fix and flip. And due to an accident on the work site, the poor worker almost lost his arm. It was almost severed. It was a terrible, terrible, tragic accident. And uh, it ended up being a mess because he hired someone under the table and they got hurt on the job. Wow. Okay. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back right after the break and talk about what you need to look out for if you're hiring people to help with your business under the table.
Welcome back, everyone, to the Refresh Your Wealth Show with Mark Kohler and Matt Sorensen. Now, Mark, before that uh, commercial interruption, you were sharing, <laughs> you were starting in this topic. <laughs> kind of run with that and finish your thought. This, this, uh, from this story you're about, you were sharing. Oh yeah, tragic case, tragic case. If you're just joining us, this was a client of ours that hired someone under the table to help with some. Uh, uh, what do you call it? it was, uh, well, anyway, it was part of the house. They were working on uh, the outside of the house and uh, rain gutters. That were, sorry, I had a Freudian slip there. So rain gutters. Um, and uh, the guy got hurt f- uh, from some falling debris and almost cut his arm off. I mean, that sounds so dramatic, but they were able to save his arm, but lots of surgery, lots of costs. And my poor client uh, has been dealing with it legally uh, because this guy was hired under the table. So um, now we're going to talk about workers comp and employees versus subs and things you should get in writing, but let me just, let's just take it right off the table right here. Never, ever hire people under the table. It just is just so, uh, dangerous. You've got to be so careful and you're personally liable. And even if your company hires these people under the table, it could be considered negligent to hire them under the table, therefore bringing you into it personally liable. You can say, oh, I can hide behind my cup. Well, if I was a smart plaintiff attorney, I'd go, hey, this guy's he's not acting reasonably and responsibly. He's acting grossly negligent as a company hiring these people under the table without providing proper safety procedures and la, 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 la. And all of a sudden, you're getting sucked into this personally thinking, oh, I thought my corporation to protect me. So you don't want to even have to be in that argument, folks. So bottom line, uh, do not hire people under the table, which means having a good subcontractor agreement, a subcontractor agreement with the people that you're going to be hiring. Matt, what, what are some things you'd put in that agreement? Maybe I'm jumping ahead, putting you on the spot. Yeah. You're a contract guy. What would you do? Well, I think the the key part is first make sure they're truly a subcontractor. We're going to talk about employee in a, in a second here. But, you know, some subcontractor is someone that's providing a specific service for you. You're indicating what service they're going to provide. Um, and also you're indicating what you're going to pay them for that service. Now, you get to determine um, the terms of the contract. Typically, you're generally going to drive that agreement. And um, so there's some things you want to make sure that are in there. The first thing is outline the actual services that need to be performed. Outline the terms for payment clearly. Um, and you want to have some basics in there, like, for example, let's go to the real estate example, someone working on an investment property of yours, or even just someone providing services to your business. Make sure that that company has adequate insurance for the services they provide. Are they insured? Are they insuring their workers on the property? Like, are you hiring a subcontracting and a subcontract agreement with the company that's then subbing out work that they're not going to do you like kind of like you hire the general and the general house hires the subs make sure that your contract requires anyone property be covered by insurance so that if there is an accident that the insurance will be able to cover that matt and that's a great comment let me interject something right here is that i think do do you have to say well every one of my subs say i hire a guy to come over here and work on my washer dryer or someone to work on my lawn do they have to have a general liability insurance policy? I wouldn't say that they have to. You want to ask, and you at least want to put in the agreement they should. But what Matt, I think you said that was really important is that you know that they carry workers' comp insurance 
if they have other workers. See, if you're just hiring some guy flying solo to come and work at your house and he's a sub and you have a little subcontractor agreement, you know, I'm not as worried about do they carry workers comp or not because it's just the guy. But there's these things called workers yeah. comp waivers where you're going to say, oh, you've got workers on the site. I want a workers comp waiver. I want a waiver that you're carrying workers comp and that these workers are not under the table because if they get hurt on the job, I don't want to get sucked into it. And uh, most general contractors are going to do that for you if you hire a general to build a house for you. But if you're going to act as your own general, these are little things general contractors do. We've got to be on top of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, and the workers comp, let me talk about workers comp, because I think this is important for you as a business owner, for your own employees. And you as an owner or investor of real estate, when people are working on the property, the nice thing about workers comp insurance is if an, someone who's employed by a company is injured, they have ins there's insurance called workers comp that limits their damages and says, here's how you're going to get paid out from, from your injury when, while working. And as an employer, it's nice because frankly, the workers comp coverage is very employer friendly. The liability is low. It's protected by insurance. So as an employer, workers' comp is actually very good. You want to make sure you have it. If you don't, you don't get those limitations on damages. Every state has that. Every state will limit damages to an employer under their workers' comp laws if you have workers' comp insurance. Big incentive to have that if you're employing anyone. Yeah, and Matt, opening up this the door on employees, you know, let's let's start playing with that mm -hmm. point because some of you are going to say, well, Mark, I hired a guy or a gal to come and do my interior design or a guy to come out and do my landscaping. It was clearly a subcontractor. You had a subcontractor agreement. Maybe they had no other workers on mm -hmm. site. Maybe they even gave you a workers' comp waiver. Okay, that's cool. I think we all can get our head around that. But then here's where people push the envelope. They say, well, I'm going to have this helper come by every day and do some things for me, but I don't want to do all the payroll crap. So I'm just going to call them a sub. Now we start getting into this employer mm -hmm. issue where, Hey, are they going to run errands for you? Are they going to drive your car? Are they going to be walking into your building that has a slippery sidewalk or, you know, what could be happening with this person that you want to call as a sub and give them a 1099 or acting as an employee. And I think that Matt's, that's where you're going with this is that, Without having workers comp, they're going to guess what that employee is going to do when they get hurt. <laughs> Sorry, that worker. Yeah. What are they going to say they are? <laughs> All right. Yeah. And it, it's tricky because I know as a business owner, it's want the ease of the, the taxes to say, oh, they're just a 1099. I don't want to have to do, you know employment taxes on their payroll and all that. It's just easier for me to 1099 them. And I get it. I know, I know. But on the legal side, you're far better off having them as an employee from a legal standpoint because you have better legal protections. Your losses and liability is limited if they're an employee when you also have workers' comp insurance protection for them. And workers' comp usually is not that expensive um, in comparison to other insurance policies. It's certainly not, you know, like the health insurance uh, policy increases yeah. we've seen. But <laughs> Don't even bring up Obamacare. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but uh, so it's, it's that, that conflict, I think, I know is – it is tricky, but when you're when someone truly is an employee, and I think as Mark was alluding to almost there is when when they're doing things for you that could cause liability, you want them as an employee. You want to have workers' comp protection. That's a good deal for you as a business owner. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's go through some specific rules here. You're listening to this show because you want the meat. We're not just hiding the ball. We're not saying you got to call us for an answer. We're going to give it to you right now. So if you want to know the differences between an employer, I'm sorry, an employee and a subcontractor, the IRS provides an amazing uh, resource on irs.gov. All you have to do is type in employee versus subcontractor. And this great little mm. resource comes right up and it talks about control and the workspace and what jobs and duties they have. In the past, the IRS has kind of had a 10 point list and it's really subjective. It's not ABCD, check it off, they're an employee. It's, you have to look at them and go, do they walk like a duck, talk like a duck, sound like a duck, look like a duck? Okay, they must be a duck. And so you want to be mm -hmm. looking at this analysis and saying, okay, if I really treat them like an employee, they act like an employee, they, they really feel like an employee and I can tell them they're fired if I want anytime, then folks, they're a freaking employee. Don't, don't try to yeah. <laughs> hide behind some definition. It, it's, it's crazy. And I've got blog articles on this. The IRS.gov website's great. Yeah, and I think what a uh, key point on that is if you're classifying someone as a subcontractor, so you're saying they're not an employee because you're not controlling them, they're not coming to your work, you know, your place of business, they're not sitting at your desk and using your computer. They're true, they're really independent. Okay. And you're just giving them the duties they gotta do and they're figuring out how to do it. They're just providing service on their own time, their own equipment. Yeah. Exactly. But if you're doing that, you need to have a subcontractor agreement define that in writing what duties they're doing and make sure that that agreement defines and keeps them as a subcontractor don't write in the agreement that they're basically an employee that's that's exhibit a going to be used against you with the irs so make sure you have an actual subcontractor agreement that treats them like a sub who would i like it matt just threw out that little three-letter acronym irs so now we're going to have to talk about the tax issues that go with this. Now, let me give just give a, a factor figure here is that whenever you hire an employee, folks, a lot of people think, oh, it's going to be so expensive. The average across the country is you're looking at about 10%. So if you hire someone for $10 an hour, it's really costing you $11 an hour. Now, I'll break down how that adds up and why and what your exposure could be with the IRS if you don't follow those rules. We're going to be right back after the break here on Refresh Your Wealth. Welcome back, everybody, to Refresh Your Wealth. We're uh, here talking about the risks and rewards of contractors, subs, employees, hiring under the table. And uh, we're here in our final segment. want to thank you for listening and uh, just wrap up on a few points here. Now, we just talked about the tax issue and the cost of an employee. So let me reiterate this. When you're going to your budget and saying, well, I'm paying so-and-so under the table $10 an hour, if you switch them to an employee the real effective cost is going to be about 10% or $11 an hour. So it's not the end of the world. You can hire a payroll service, uh, a leasing service. This is going to provide the matching, which is 7.65. And that other 3% is kind of that workers' comp figure Matt was talking about when you average it out over the employee's pay. And SUDA and FUDA, that's state unemployment and federal unemployment. So SUDA, mm -hmm. FUDA, workers' comp, and FICA, the F word, FICA, it, it, you know, <laughs> that's where that cost comes in. Yeah, and um, studies have shown also 
10% increases, Mark said, on wages, but 15% increase in terms of sleeping better at night. Mm, I like that. Four out of five dentists say you're going to sleep better. I like yeah. that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, no, it is true. That that extra peace of mind, that's what you're paying for. And uh, so. Good yeah. Stuff. So, I it's not that that tax issue. It's not that big of a deal. I think it's the it's always that first employee. I think a lot of business owners have that hurdle of getting over because once you get one employee on payroll, then it's easy. You know what I mean? Then that second and third one and fourth and whatever you have, it's easier. They just, you got the same system, you're running payroll. So it, I know it's that first one that always causes the issue. And I think that's where you see a lot of non-compliance is they got that one person that's really an employee kind of providing a lot of duties that are employee duties that, that should get added on. That's, that's not, I think that's a, uh, problem area at least i see with a lot of clients it's just get over the hump it's not tough and uh you're gonna sleep better at night yeah and here's the risk we got to throw out the risk and rewards the risk though of not getting that peace of mind is that if the state tracks you down or if this employee slash uh, sub complains to the state that you're gypped them on overtime or you gypped them on vacation pay, if they complain at all to what's called workforce services in most states, all of a sudden you are open to a workforce services audit, which now is state unemployment. And guess who they make a phone call to? Guess who they have on speed dial when they find some guy that's not paying Mm -hmm. employee taxes? It is the IRS. So now the state's breathing down your neck. The IRS is breathing down your neck. And it's not the employee that pays all these taxes. It's you because you never withheld it in the first place. So that 10% just went up to 17 to 20%. So either pay 10% now and get the peace of mind or face an audit. And the penalties could be 20 cents on the dollar for every dollar you've paid those employees. Ugh, not good. Mm. So Yeah, so... All right. Well, even even more incentive to get in compliance on that. And I, Mark, excuse me, I like that the, the IRS resource that their website is actually very good. And keep in mind, it's a tax and legal issue. And um, that uh, if you are a business owner, you're significantly going to be protected. Now, here I want to talk about just one other thing, because I know I have a lot of clients who are actually like being 1099, right? Our mm-hmm. real estate broker clients, um, a lot of consultant clients or sales professionals that love to be 1099 and they really like independence and they have that. And so if you're in that scenario, that's great. You get to have a small business, you're getting 1099. There's so much more flexibility you're getting. I'm not saying as an employee, you always want to be an employee. You know what I mean? So uh, from the business owner standpoint, as we are talking about, you may want to be an employee, but if you have some self-employment, like in the real estate broker, the sales professional, the consultant, you know, let's keep you in that 1099 structure, let you have a business, more opportunity for write-offs, and uh, a lot of, a lot better results you can have on your tax return from doing that. No, good comments. And Matt, you're, you're, you're right on. And the tax benefits of having an employee and the te- the libel uh, legal or liability protection is so important and it's nice to have an employee because you have most of the times an at will state where you can fire them if you need to you can treat them like an employee and be a little more controlling for those control freaks out there this could be for you you know so uh <laughs> it's all good it's all good well i uh uh, bottom line is we didn't want this to be a Debbie Downer show and say, oh, you can't do this, can't do that. It's, hey, 
These are little things that'll make your life easier in the long run. It's not when an employee gets upset. It's not when, uh, no, sorry, let me rephrase that. It's not if an employee is going to get upset or if a subcontractor is going to get injured or something. It's when. And so you want to be prepared for that. And our job on this show is to protect you. So uh, keep that in mind. Yeah. Now, I want to give a shout out to those giving us five-star reviews on iTunes. As you know, that's a great place to go for prior shows under the Refresh Your Wealth show on iTunes. And I want to just highlight one of the five-star reviews we've had recently. This was from Jimmy Tom 2003 who wrote in five stars. Terrific program. Great advice that's easy to follow. Digest. So when we went for a refreshing show, we also want it to be digestible. <laughs> ah, nice. Look at that guy throwing down a little bit of, uh, you know, a- acronyms there that work, you know, the related to our topic. <laughs> I like it. So, so. and uh, Jimmy Tom, whoever you may be, uh, give Mark or I an email. We'd like to send you a free copy of either one of our books and encourage those of you out there listening to the show. Um, give us a five-star review on iTunes. It does help other people find this show. And uh, if you have any constructive feedback, also free field to email us. Um, you could put that on iTunes, but better off to just email us, you know, just email us yeah, and put the good go. stuff on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Put the good stuff on iTunes. Send us, a, you know, any constructive thoughts via email. And uh, for anybody that has a special topic that you would like us to cover. Now, next week's topic, I'm going to throw it out there because I think we're on track for this next week's topic. And that mm-hmm. is uh, education how to fund education, how, this is fast for time. If any of you have college-age children out there, this is a huge time of the year. Getting your tax returns done, what do I put on the FAFSA to get my kids in college and get a, 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 a grant or a loan? And so next week, we're gonna have an expert come on the show and give tips and strategies for all of you parents out there stressing about college education this coming fall, because right now, it's FAFSA time. Woo, I'm just throwing that out. Yeah, baby. Right. That's good. All right. Well, I'm I'm super excited for that show, and we do have a, an expert lined up for that. It's going to shed some light on it. Thanks for being with us. We will see you next week on the Refresh Your Wealth Show. Thanks for listening to another hour of refreshing strategies to better live your American dream. Don't forget to get your free copy of Mark and Matt's eBooks and sign up for their weekly free newsletter with important tax deadlines and articles at refreshyourwealth.com. Oh,